Mission Log Supplemental. Number 18. Another one with Mike and Denise Okuda. Welcome to the 18th in a long line of Mission Log, a Roddenberry podcast supplemental episodes. I'm John Champion. You left out the Star Trek part. And I'm Ken Ray. <laughs> we fine. didn't say I think people know. I think Are you, you said, sure? I think you said the podcast Roddenberry. I'm John Champion. And I said oh. you left out the Star Trek part. People probably know, though, this is the 18th supplemental that we've done. So if you haven't picked up yet, that mostly what we talk about is Star Trek. Hopefully they know. Although, you know, it's interesting because we have gotten uh, listener email and uh, listener voicemail wondering when we're done with Star Trek, will we do something else? And I, and I keep thinking, well, we are a Roddenberry podcast, so it makes sense that we do Star Trek. Um, but then when people ask, like, hey, when are you going to do, uh, you know, who's the boss? Or when are you going to do, <laughs> what are you going to do, MASH? Or, or is yeah. anything? Well, okay. It, thank you for the compliment that you think that we do a good job with these podcasts, but um, yeah, if it's not Roddenberry, uh, we probably won't. Although there are well, other Roddenberry properties other than Star Trek. If it's so, not Roddenberry after the Moonlighting podcast. Well, right, yeah, we yeah. have to do the Moonlighting podcast. Because we already yeah, said yeah, that. So that's, yeah, we owe that to Curtis. Yes, right. that's like another <laughs> year and a half of our lives that we'll never get back. Right, right. And then, you know, after that, yeah, we might, we might take a break for, well, 13 years. Right. And then when we're 70, <laughs> the, we'll get back we'll together. Then we'll come back. <laughs> it's a good idea. We're, we're putting one the more band thing. back together. Hey, uh, uh, speaking of other properties, forgive me. I have to go ahead and get something out of the way right now. I misspoke yeah, yeah. On, the, um, on the Star Trek VI podcast. Uh-oh. I said that uh, there was a quote that I loved from something incredibly stupid. Uh, the quote mm. that I loved was, uh, the time to make up your mind about people is never. The time to decide about people is never. Mm-hmm. Um. Now, let me back up a little bit. The reason that I say it's from something stupid is because I have this habit when I'm writing. Because my other thing, what I do on a daily basis is a a podcast and other stuff that's all about Apple News. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mac OS Can on uh, iTunes if you want to check it out. And my habit is I, I sit there and I write and in the background there is something dumb playing. Either something dumb or something I know like the back of my hand. Usually it's a Mystery Science Theater 3000 of some sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went through a long period where it was one of the three Godfather films, which are not stupid, but I've seen them a million times. Mm-hmm. I don't watch Star Trek because that makes me think too much. So right. um, my assumption was that I picked up that quote from some dumb thing that I've watched forever and ever. Back in the days before DVDs, Joan, yeah, which I, I know you can't think. Yeah. Oh, okay, you can no, then. No. It, it was a sad, dark time. Yeah, I, I had a video cassette of the Philadelphia story. Oh, and I love the yeah, me too. And it's just an absolutely brilliant movie, and it's a fantastic movie. And it turns out that is the movie where that quote came from. So thanks to everybody who reminded me that that's where it was. And let me rescind. Um, that is not a, a, a dumb thing at all. So that's not where my dumb quote came from. And uh, in about, what do we say, 30 years, listen for our Philadelphia Story podcast. <laughs> oh, John's got so much trivia about the Philadelphia Story. Save uh-huh. it. Save it. Okay, okay. Okay. But yeah. Well, now we know, but yeah, but it is definitely not a dumb movie. No. If you haven't seen the Philadelphia Story, please, please go see it. Watch also it like play. every day for a year. Yeah, there you go. They're going to do a podcast about it. <laughs> um, so a little bit of business to take care of. We have, a, we have a jam-packed show today. We've got a lot of stuff that we want to get out before we get into Star Trek The Next Generation. So, yes, for those of you who are listening to this show, Next Gen will start on Thursday, July 31st, 2014. 
Um, so sorry if you were expecting it this week, but uh, no, we wanted to wait until the day that uh, Star Trek Las Vegas opens because that's when we launched Mission Log, and it seemed only fitting that uh, that we time it out to fit that. Plus, supplementals are fun. So uh, a couple of things to let people know about. Uh, Ken, you and I were recently guests on uh, a Trek FM show called The Ready Room with uh, Brian Jones, and that was a lot of fun. And that show should be out of us. not out on the day that this comes out, then it's very, very close to that date. Uh, so do check out The Ready Room, Ready Room on uh, Trek FM. Yes, sort of, uh, sort of us uh, going between the original series and next gen, kind of like we're doing now, but mm-hmm. with other people asking us about it. Right, right, right. Um, and then other business, other news coming up. So uh, when this episode drops, we will be exactly one week away from the opening of Star Trek Las Vegas. So news to give you about that. Uh, we will have a table there, so you can drop by and meet me and Ken. We'll be right across from the Roddenberry Island in the center of the vendor room. Um, we will also have a panel in Vegas, and um, this will be interesting. Rod, Rod has sort of been crafting this on his own, and he has his ideas about how this panel is going to go, and I think he's going to be asking us questions. So, um, Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I've never met him, so this will be kind of exciting. I, it'll be kind of cool, won't it? <laughs> right. And you've never met him. No, and no. I, I'm not sure he's actually a guy. So, couldn't, so couldn't pick him out of a lineup. Yeah, this will so. be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it'll be cool. Um, other things that are happening in and around that time, that Thursday will be the last day that our next-gen Blu-ray giveaway is happening. So if you've not registered yet, please do. We are giving away three copies of Star Trek The Next Generation Season 1 on Blu-ray online. So you can get to that through our uh, our webpage, missionlogpodcast.com, through our Facebook page, facebook.com slash missionlogpod. Um, do that, and then we will also be giving away a fourth bonus copy at the convention. So you got at least two chances to win if you will be going to the convention. Uh, we're also going to be giving away two transporters from our friends at filetransporterstore.com, and that information will be forthcoming. So um, check that out. That is a very, very cool prize if you uh, – if you well, if you want to store and back up and share your files, and uh, after all that giveaway action, Ken, mm-hmm. we have another very very cool. This is a big big giveaway. It's a big thing. Yeah, we're giving away, and it will start on August first. It is really kind of awesome. It is kind of awesome, and all I can say is kapla. I, I was going to say kapla. You can say kapla. Kapla. <laughs> all right. Before really quickly before we go any further, yes, yeah. we both actually have met Rod Roddenberry, so you know, <laughs> no. don't bother because I know you're going to say, "Well, I've got pictures of you too." And well, of course you do. <laughs> People will send like police sketches. Exactly. <laughs> say here, here here's what he looks like. Guy. You've never yeah. met him. I've met him. Gah. Okay. <laughs> All yeah. right. So, as we like to do. It's time for a little Q&A from our listeners, and uh, we've got a couple of voicemails we want to play, and uh, let's go to the first one. Greetings, Mission Log. This is John Romineo at Quasar Sniffer on Twitter. I have a comment about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Oh, boy. There are so many ways this movie went wrong, so many ways it could have gone so right, too, which is what makes it so frustrating. It's not... You know, it's not a terrible movie. It's just a disappointing 
movie, and you guys covered the reasons why uh, very well, and I greatly thank you for that. But I thought it was interesting. I was listening to the commentary, and frequently William Shatner, director and star, complained about not having an adequate budget for this effect or this sequence and having to take shortcuts or hurry up and shoot it and stuff. And as you both pointed out, this movie had a bigger budget than Star Trek Four, and certainly a bigger budget than Star Trek Two. and both of those films are greatly superior to Star Trek V. And so I'm wondering, do you think that just because it was the first-time director, Shatner wasn't able to handle the money and the logistics that are acquired of a major film. But uh, on with the undiscovered country, how look forward to that one. Thank you. Thank you, John, AKA Quasar Sniffer. Um, it, to boil down your question, what went wrong with Star Trek five? As you do point out, Shatner had a higher budget than previous movies. And I, you know, we tried to touch a little bit of this on the, uh, on the podcast about Star Trek five, about how, there are so many factors, so many hands in that pie that could actually make what was hopefully going to be a good movie into a not so successful movie, not so good a movie. Yeah. Um, and, and it's very difficult to just lay all the blame at somebody's feet and say, well, OK, Shatner directed it, so it's all him or so-and-so produced it, so it's all here. You know, it's very difficult to do that. I, I've learned something in and around this business that nobody sets out to make a bad movie, <laughs> you know? Well, it doesn't... except for Sharknado 2. Okay, well, that that's true. Uh, yeah, maybe now, Sharknado, now we... I don't know, but... Yeah, yeah, now, now we live in the, the post-ironic world of making movies that are just bad for the sake of being bad. I could do a whole other show about that, and yeah. sometimes on DVD, because I have done a whole other show about that. Um, but really, you know, it, whether it's a big budget or a low budget, people gather together and think that they are doing the best that they can possibly do. Mm. And maybe they got kind of behind the eight ball on this one where the script wasn't where it should have been when they went into production. And maybe Shatner was not the right choice as a director, um, regardless of it being first time doing a feature or not. There are people who do first time features who are brilliant. Right. And there are others who aren't so brilliant. There was something else actually that occurred to me just as, as we were, just as we were answering this question, mm-hmm. um, Star Trek II was an awesome jumping-off point for yeah. three movies, right? Yeah. And Star Trek Three is sort of a bridge to Star Trek Four, and Star Trek Four really gets to tell the conclusion of this of this really fascinating story. And yes, they're each very different movies, and yes, they bring you know completely new elements into it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the whole thing—I mean, that 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 sort of three-story arc is about okay from the death of Spock to uh, Spock coming back in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Star Trek V is a blank slate, yeah, and, and so you you don't even have sort of like, in some ways you don't even have what was guiding everything else. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, you still got the same people, and you still got some of the same principles behind the scenes, but you don't have. Um, I don't know. I mean, you're, you 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 sort of you you almost get this blank slate. We can do anything, oh, right? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> not right. always the biggest blessing necessarily. Well, that, that's very difficult because, yeah, the problem with doing a sequel to anything, the rule is that the audience wants the same but different. 
or right. different, but exactly the same. Right. And when you're dealing with a movie version of a beloved TV show, well, kind of the only place to go is you have to raise the stakes, raise the stakes, raise the stakes, make it more dramatic, bigger, faster, more intense, more dramatic. And they achieve that very well with Star Trek II, obviously, because when you work in a death scene for a major character, then you just you gave a lot of gravity to everything that was going on. Like you say, blank slate going into Star Trek V, well, kudos to everybody who decided, well, look, we'll look at these old episodes like um, Who Mourns for Adonais, where we get to question these big topics, these big philosophical questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't have exactly the right writer in place, if the if the concept isn't quite strong enough, then even if the idea is there, you just kind of come up short in the end. Can I ask, so, have you yeah. watched the uh, TV version that somebody sent us? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I watched posted it on Facebook, I think. Uh, on Twitter, uh, oh, okay. yeah. Somebody posted on Twitter the TV edit, I mean, and I've watched about I've watched about half of it as of now. Okay, yeah. does yeah. it work? Because I haven't had. I, I, I mean, because I want to sit down and do like the forty eight minutes. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it works better. I'll, I'll tell you that for sure. Okay, um, definitely. All right. Definitely. So that's it, something that people can look forward to on our Twitter feed, which we'll, we'll mm-hmm. remind people what it is later. But Mission Log Pod. Yeah. On Twitter. Um, yeah, apparently somebody, because one of the complaints that you and I had, or one of the complaints that I had, and I think you agreed, was this probably would have made a really good episode of Star Trek if they had just cut out a lot of the stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And apparently some fan has gone and made it a TV edit. Right. Um, ostensibly making it just a really great episode of Star Trek. So, yeah. I don't well, know. What, what's fun is they, they do it under the pretense of this being phase two. So um, as if, yeah, as if Star Trek had continued into phase two, as we talked about with Judy and Gar, uh, right. Stevens. So I, I love that they did that. that, that it was kind of clever. Hey, John and Ken, Oren here from All Things Trek. I called in to talk about the myth of Star Trek being about perfect people, especially in relationship to Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. I call it a myth because if you really look at TOS, it was never the case. There are multiple episodes in which characters are shown to either be flawed, or at the very least, have to make difficult choices. Consider Balance of Terror. The Romulan ship is escaping, and Kirk intentionally lures it back and destroys it, killing everyone on board. Of course, he had good reasons for doing that, but he still chose to kill hundreds of people when he did not immediately have to. In Arena, Kirk and crew chase after the fleeing Gorn ship because they want revenge. Spock is the only one who objects. They give up their quest for vengeance at the end of the episode, but if they were so perfect, why were they hungry for blood in the first place? In Day of the Dove, the alien lifeform didn't create the crew's negative feelings, it only enhanced and fed off them. In Friday's Child, a red shirt draws his phaser on a Klingon just for being a Klingon. None of this is to say that the TOS crew were bad people. They were amazing people, but they weren't perfect, and if they were supposed to be, then Roddenberry did a really bad job portraying it. The idea of the Federation being perfect is something that Roddenberry seems to have come up with in between TOS and TNG. He tried it in TNG's first season and did not work at all, as evidenced by how much the show changed when Michael Piller took over. As to the Starfleet conspirators in Star Trek VI, Roddenberry invented the evil admiral trope. Every Starfleet higher-up we see in TOS and early TNG was either incompetent or had an ulterior motive, so he didn't have any room to complain about Admiral Cartwright or Colonel West. In Star Trek VI, we see the crew being prejudiced against Klingons, but they weren't being over-the-top bigots by any means. During the dinner, they try to play nice with the Klingons, and it's mostly the Klingons' own provocation that makes things get out of hand. Well, except for Kirk's Hitler line. That was maybe a little uncalled for. 
This especially struck a chord with me because the idea of the Federation being perfect is not only untrue, it's actively harmful. The Federation still has conflict with other groups, and if the Feds are perfect, then the fault can only lie with the Outsiders. This idea that our side hasn't done anything wrong, so it must be the other guy's fault, is the opposite of forward thinking. It's what people have used to justify conflict since the beginning of history. Ask the average Israeli or Palestinian who's responsible for the current conflict, and both will blame the other. Star Trek VI was a visionary film because it dared to imagine the Klingons as something other than mustache-twirling groups of bad guys out to ruin the Federation's day. It showed that some of the blame rested with the Federation, and by definition us, the viewers. It said, hey, maybe the Russians weren't the only ones at fault for the Cold War. How many real-life conflicts could we solve if people on both sides were willing to be introspective like that? That's why I was so surprised when Ken called it a fun action movie, with air quotes. How many fun action movies portray the conflict between two nations in such a nuanced and realistic manner? It showed that such conflict is difficult to get past, but it can be done if both sides are willing to make the effort. I don't say any of this to besmirch Gene Roddenberry. The man was a creative genius, but not all his ideas were gold. If we start throwing out stories like Star Trek VI because they didn't match his supposed vision, then Star Trek will lose a lot of its ability to do what it does best, tell stories that comment on problems we are facing in the real world. Anyway, that's the end of my rant. Keep up the good work, guys. Orin out. We know Orin. Yeah, of course we know Orin. <laughs> we, like, we like Orin. I love Orin. Even if it doesn't sound like it in the next 30 seconds to a minute. Oh, oh, no. There's, I'm just, there's something, first of all, I don't remember saying that Star Trek VI was just a fun action movie. I think it is a fun action movie, but I don't remember mm. saying that it is just a fun action movie. And if I did, well, then, you know, double dumbass on me. Right. Um, I think where I get most frustrated, mm-hmm. and, and this goes back to this side of paradise, <laughs> oh no! No, it's, right. uh, okay. I have this crazy idea that one day we're going to get to a better place than where we are, and I'm not saying it's going to be the drugged out hippie culture that this side of paradise was necessarily. But I think the argument that I made during that show was, I have to believe that what we're trying to get to is some sort of state of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, sort of. Uh, an informed enlightenment, maybe. We get to a place where we don't have to struggle, where we don't have to slog, where we don't have to try to get it over on our other man, right? Mm-hmm. We get to a place where things are cool. And what bothers me, where, where I actually get sad, is if we can't even in our imaginations sit with the idea that mankind as a group makes it past prejudice and greed and things like that, we're doomed. I mean, if we can't even in a neighborhood of make-believe... <laughs> you know, where we accept warp drive and food replicators and transporters and fish cats and intelligent races with whom we can speak the second that we meet them. Mm-hmm. If, if we can get all of those things in our head, but we can't get past the idea of money or we can't get past the idea of, well, you know, we're always going to hate people. If we can't if we can't if we can't get past those things, even just in playtime, then I don't I, then I then I can't see what our hope is. And that I think is all that I think is all that Roddenberry was doing. I do not remember ever saying that everybody in the Federation was perfect. People are never going to be perfect. But trying to strive toward a more perfect society, to, to paraphrase another document that I think might have been from a, it might have been an X-Men comic. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to try to get towards something better and, and to even to, to start your story with, hey, we got to this better place. Now, it's not like everything is perfect. Here's a guy, for example, who lives in that society for whom things are not perfect. I don't believe I ever said that the people were perfect, but but I don't think it is 
foolish in fiction to to talk about the idea that we do actually get to a good place for humanity. And yes, they're all they're all much more ripping yarns if you don't have that. When you've got members of Starfleet working against other members of Starfleet trying to subvert something, that is a much more well, it's certainly an easier story to tell. Is it a better story? It depends on who's writing it. I was honestly reminded of um, a line from Searching for Bobby Fischer. Did okay. you ever see that movie? No. No, oh, wonderful movie. I highly recommend it. Joe Montaigne, Lawrence Fishburne, um, that woman who ended up being Bourne's controller, whose name I can't <laughs> think of, Joan Allen. Is it Joan Allen? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right. And a couple of other people. Ben Kingsley, fantastic oh. movie. But it's about this kid who's a child, uh, based on a true story, it's about a kid who's a chess prodigy. But the thing is, he really enjoys going to Washington Square and, and playing with the with the hustlers mm-hmm. because it's it's a different kind of chess. He's not, you know... He's not learning moves. He's not. He's not pitted against. He's. He's. You know. He's playing the board. He's just. And he's. You know. Playing a game of chess in two minutes, which he can do no problem because he's awesome, right? Right. And he likes doing that. And the guy who's supposed to be teaching him how to be a classic chess player says he can't go there anymore. And his mother says, "Well, he likes it." And the guy says, "Well, if he goes there, I mean, that just makes my job harder." And she says, "Well, then your job's harder." Writing stories in a perfect society might be more difficult than writing stories where you have one group of bad guys going against some other guys who are ostensibly good but will do bad things. Okay, that's just a harder job then. I mean, we still, if we give up on the idea that we're going to get someplace better, we're never going to get there. That's, and that's, that's, sort of why I get, uh, that's sort of why I get bummed out. I actually do like Oren, but that's sort of – also the air quotes thing. I don't remember doing the air quotes thing. <laughs> that actually kind of got to me because air quotes were said derisively, and I don't remember saying – Air quotes, but you know, okay. <laughs> maybe it was an maybe implied I did. air quote. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. implications are funny things. Yes, um, yeah. I, I, I'm much more on Oren's side here, and the the reason you is... always take Oren's side. Why <laughs> <laughs> can't you support me? I know, I know. <clears> hey, just think, we only got 12 more years of doing this. Yeah. I know. Um, the reason is this. When I think about the the Federation, Starfleet, the, the structures that, that we have in this supposedly more perfect future, and yeah, Gene Roddenberry was establishing and trying to describe this more perfect future, mm-hmm. um, and, and clearly drawing uh, a comparison to what we have now. He's showing a lot of strides, a lot of changes, and and noble and worthy causes that we should be aiming toward. No question about it. No doubt about it. I also think about the Yangs and the Combs, your old your old favorite, Ken, mm-hmm. from uh, from the Omega Glory. Yes. When Kirk goes in and reads the Constitution to them, you know he's saying to them, "Look, you have the structure here." You have the information that you need. What you have to do now is actually live up to that. And I kind of see Star Trek VI in that same way. We have the structure. Starfleet and the Federation in in their respective uh, uh, areas of concern, they have the structure there and they have the resources and they have the people. But for whatever reason, and in this case, the reason being decades and decades of conflict with the Klingons, um, we may have lost some ability to see beyond that. So the movie reminds us in that case, and it certainly reminds Kirk, you need to see beyond the the limits of your own prejudice. And I, I think that's a valuable lesson. I think that's a great and, – and, and if all it is there to do is to say, here is the way that they get past it because there's this one remaining thing that kept them from being even better – 
then it's a valuable thing to see that. I think it's, but I'm basically, I am, I think defending the rights of the artist as creator, honestly. I mean, what Roddenberry was trying to do was, I mean, I don't think he would have a problem with this story, except I don't think he wanted it to be the Federation. Because if you want to apply it to society today, or if you want to apply it to the U.S. or whatever you want to apply it to, Mm -hmm. I think what what he wanted to start off believing was we get past it. Now, there might be other people who don't, and there might be individuals who struggle, but we as a whole get past it. Mm -hmm. And we're never going to, if we can't even pretend that we do, without going, eh, but I'm bored by that idea. I mean, if we can't, if we can't even have anything that we're going to hold up as a, as a fiction thing, right? And say, look, we, I mean, here, here, okay, so here's what we're shooting for. Mm-hmm. And and if we can't even do that, I mean, I, yes, these are always things you're going to have to guard against. And yes, every one of those individual examples that Oren laid out are absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what you've actually got is this, you've got this thing rotting from the inside in this movie. It's not just Kirk dealing with his prejudice. It's, it's, it's Kirk and Admiral Cartwright, the guy yeah. from, uh, he was in uh, Roots and I can't remember his real name, Ah, but you know, that's really not a surprise, is it? And uh, and the elusive uh, Colonel West and yeah. you know the the Romulans and the Klingons they can actually all get together you know to fight each other secretly but they can't all get together for peace and the fact that the Federation was it was part of that triumvirate I think is just I mean it's sad that individuals might be is is one thing but it just I mean it felt like this this was a rotten it felt like this was a relatively rotten organization at that point the president well, aside. Yeah, but, but that's the thing. We see individuals who are not rotten. And granted, we're not, you know, in that movie, we're not seeing the entirety of Starfleet. We're seeing a few individuals. We're seeing the president. We're seeing that boardroom meeting. And then we're seeing whoever is on the Enterprise. Right. And even those who are on the Enterprise, yeah, if we if we say it's a given that uh, Chekhov and Uhura and they have this kind of uneasy thing that can be chalked up as prejudice or racism or bigotry about the Klingons. Yeah, but they all eventually get over it because they all eventually see, hey, this is more important. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot about this movie. Honestly, there's a lot about this movie, if we want to be this serious about it, that that sort of strikes me as wrong. I mean, I I think you actually likened what Spock did to Valeris at the end of it to Extraordinary Rendition. Yeah. Or not Extraordinary Rendition, I'm sorry, Enhanced Interrogation Techniques. Yeah, and I mean, there's there are plenty of things. I would have been fine seeing the Romulans do it, yeah. Because then, you know, even if Kirk was sort of secretly rooting for them or not so secretly rooting for them, at least we could have stood there and said, "Oh, that's it, it's horrible what they're doing." Because because honestly, and and this again would be if I were writing it, and mm-hmm. I'm just trying to put myself in that position. I would like to believe. That we, you know, that we don't do these kind of things. And, of course, we know now that we do these kinds of things, or at least we know that we did a few years ago. Theoretically, we don't anymore, but I don't guess we'll ever actually know for certain. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, if we go ahead and accept that in our fiction, then we go ahead and accept that in our fact. We've got 24 today. I mean, and, and we've got, you know, all kinds of all kinds of. I don't want to say anti-heroes, but we have all kinds of tellings where where somebody you know just just you know plays a little bit outside the law and he and he makes his own rules and you know and and we're like yeah because he's the good guy and he gets that stuff done but he does a ton of stuff that we wouldn't necessarily want to see done mm-hmm. and and the idea that the idea that we can't even pretend I guess that's the part that bothers me we can't even pretend that 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 we come to a place where none of this is 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 necessary um, it's just kind of a 
just kind of a bummer. So well, we had another listener who wrote in who said that you know I appreciate the idea that even if we make six steps forward, if we make that one step back, which is not out of the question, then we course correct. You know, and, and that's what this movie is doing. It is a course correction, and, and I like that that theme kind of plays into uh, Spock's great line to Kirk. Um, saying, you know, are we so old and inflexible that we have outlived our usefulness? And because it's not just about them, them physically, that, but also kind of the the idea of wh- where they are and what they stand for. So I, I think it all plays in very, very nicely together. And it doesn't sort of sour me on the idea of a better future, a brighter future, and even Gene Roddenberry's future to say that here, here are the roadblocks and then we get, we get past them again. Hello, Ken and John. This is Steve from Florida. And uh, love you guys. Love the show. And uh, just wanted to call and say I just listened to the Star Trek Four episode. Uh, entertaining, fun as always. Um, Ken, I was a little bit disappointed when you said the quote at the end was from some book. I hope you're being facetious, because that was actually a quote from the Bible. Uh, the actual quote is, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it's in uh, first or second Timothy, I don't remember which one, but uh, often it's quoted as money is evil, or, uh, but um, anyways, so... Uh, Again, keep up the good work, guys. It was fun. And uh, looking forward to slash dreading Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. All right. Talk to you guys later. Out. I'm sorry. What was that book? Because <laughs> I thought, actually, you know, I was thinking about it afterwards. I thought it was Uncle Ben, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> when he was talking to Peter about uh, with lots of money comes great resp- No? Oh. I don't know. Yeah, I actually did know. Uh, the love of money is the root of all evils. Yeah, you're right. Often misquoted, and I think you actually had a different quote. I don't know if that's a different uh, translation or if that's uh, what that is exactly. But um, often misquoted as money is the root of all evil, which is you know uh, debatable. But that's yeah, not the, that's right. not the quote anyway. Um, right. The love of money is the root of all evil is the quote. And yes, uh, it is from uh, the Bibli, yep. as as uh, as Steve was kind enough to point out. Mm-hmm. So, Ken, uh, with all of that, uh, I'm very pleased that we get to go into uh, part two of our interview with Mike and Denise Okuda. They were so great to join us for our wrap-up of TOS, and we had many more questions, and they were such great sports to stick around and talk to us. So, uh, everybody, enjoy that, and um, we will catch you next time when we talk about Star Trek The Next Generation. Before we spend time with Mike and Denise, you need to know that there are issues with the audio. Ken blames John. John blames Ken. I blame the accident-prone nature of the ugly bags of mostly water that are carbon-based life forms. The person who handles our audio, he's asked me not to mention him by name Ken, did his best to make it listenable. There was, however, only so much he could do. He is, after all, an ugly bag of mostly water. Right. On to a second conversation with Mike and Denise Okuda. One of the things that we left off uh, with in our last interview was favorite and least favorite. And it was very interesting because, Denise, you said that your least favorite 
was Plato's stepchildren. And then, Mike, you chimed in with how Spock's brain is just kind of like obviously a, a, a really rough episode. and But you still treated it as if it were one of the greats because you wanted to treat the whole series as... Um, to give it sort of its due, to get, make sure the whole series looked good as you worked on TOSR. And uh, and then, Denise, you, you were just shocked to hear that Ken and I would have pulled something positive out of the experience of reviewing Spock's brain. So well, tell I, us what you love about it. Yeah, I was going to say, I think there's a dichotomy between professionalism working on TOSR and trying to make it the best thing, and then mm-hmm. personally. I mean... I can stand play to strip to it, but as a professional, I would have done everything I could to make it viewable. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I mean, well, Ken, I mean, your point about Plato's stepchildren was and still is that that episode is ruined by the last line. Yeah, it's hurt a lot by the last line. As, uh, Kirk tells Alexander this story about how, you know, they live in a place where. Where he comes from, someone of Alexander's statue, stature is not going to be, uh, you know, ridiculed or, or nothing bad is going to happen to him. The, yeah, the Federation is is paved with gold, and and there are lollipop trees and all kinds of wonderful things. And then you know when they're saying that they're going to beam up, he says he has a little surprise for Scotty. And it's like, oh, by the way, all that stuff I said about you know you not being made fun of, yeah, that was just a thing I say. I mean, it was really sort of terrible. Now, I mean, uh, Denise, to your, um, you know, uh, observation that uh, it's sadistic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it absolutely is. But it felt like the episode kind of like tried to veer away from that. But then at the end, everything that Kirk said they were, I mean, they went for the laugh at the end instead of just, you know, being the best that they possibly could. As far as, but I, I'm amazed that you guys, well, maybe I shouldn't be. Everybody said going into it that Spock's brain was going to be terrible. Maybe, maybe it's the expectation. Maybe we approached it like so, with so much fear or trepidation that we were able to enjoy it a lot more because everybody had said, oh, this is just going to be terrible. You're not going to have anything to talk about. And the other thing is, of course, John and I like to geek out about putting human consciousness in robot bodies. <laughs> well, you, you, you do. I, mean, I, I thoroughly yeah. enjoy that. Yes, yes. Yeah. You, maybe you just sort of uh, play along with me. I don't know. But I think the problem is with Spock's brain that the show, as soon as we get into season three, the show looks and feels different. Even if you're not a TV professional, you go into season three going, wow, something changed here. Um, so... You're already sort of uh, a little bit off. You're already a little bit disoriented. And then the show just sort of looks and feels cheap, and the writing is not great. But, but, after all of that, Spock's brain did give us something to talk about. And we got to talk about the idea of uh, the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. Uh, yeah, and Spock's love affair with uh, the mind of a computer. Well, hey, look, man, you just got what you wanted. Now you're the few helping the many, and you're inside a computer. Way to go, Spock! <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, but Kirk's never going to let that happen. No. So, no. yeah. Actually, we have two two good things in Spock's brain. Okay. The RP on the bridge. Okay. The, yeah, the rear projection. That's cool. Okay, this is yeah. very well that done. Was, right. That was cool. Yeah, yeah. And probably the the best line in the entire series that McCoy says, 
his brain is gone. You know, I mean, how D, how D. Kelly said that without bursting into laughter is yeah. beyond me. So that's brilliant acting. The, you, you kind of feel for everybody in yes. that episode. You really do. Yeah. Uh, for, first of all, uh, I have forgotten about the RP on the screen. This, that's the use of rear projection uh, yeah, on the bridge brilliant. main viewer. Or main, main view screen. And uh, I was so impressed by that that uh, uh, during pre-production for the movie Star Trek V, uh, I, knew, I knew they were planning on, on having rear projection in the, uh, in the Enterprise uh, bridge main view screen. And I, you know, you, when you're a graphics guy, you don't normally go to the, to the director and say, here's how, how you should shoot your, uh, <laughs> your, your movie. But I, uh, I remember telling Bill, uh, having an actual screen there just completely changes the way you shoot that uh, 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 that set. So I, I went I went to a video store and I bought a copy of Spock's Beyond VHS and I, I gave it to Bill. <laughs> say here here's what a huge difference it makes in uh, in how you see the Enterprise bridge, and I, and I, and I think it does. I'm I'm sorry they didn't they didn't do that more often. So you but, made Bill Shatner watch Spock's brain? <laughs> I said just watch. I said just watch the first five minutes, or however it was. And you kept your job. <laughs> <laughs> he, he has they other ways of getting back. They used RP in the scene, so it must yeah. have done some good. Yeah. But as far as the third season, uh, Spock's brain and the third season in, in general, there's a general principle I think in which, uh, when a show has a strong concept, in the first two years, you tend to use up all many of the obvious shticks and stories and setups and things. So by the third season, even if you had a strong writer there, and I don't think Freeberger uh, was a Roddenberry by any, any case, but uh, I think he's pr- probably a better producer than he's generally given credit for, uh, I think by the time you get to that point, Okay, we've already done the evil twin story. We've already done the uh, the ancient enemy coming back. We've already done the machine. Mm-hmm. We've we've done a lot of the uh, the things that are intrinsic to the Star Trek uh, format. So when you then cast your net wider to try to find things, I think you're gonna uh, and and you did see that uh, some ideas maybe not a not have been all that great, particularly when you didn't have uh, uh, Gene Roddenberry there to provide the rewriting that he did. Uh, I know a lot of the original series writers complained a great deal about it, about his rewriting. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be said for, uh, for, for, uh, for those observations that perhaps he could have respected those writers more. But at the same time, uh, I think he gave Star Trek its voice that uh, in, in, all, in all the little things where you go here, you don't go there, uh, you you go for the outrageous concept, but but then you but then you you humanize it. You you put it in in in, in terms, and and you don't go for the uh, for, for the big obvious uh, um, uh, sci-fi shtick. And I think I think uh, I think you probably could have gotten a good story out of Spock's brain uh, if you dialed it back a couple of notches and. But, uh, well, there's a lot of those that we have talked about uh, in season two, but especially in season three, where you go, "Oh man, if if only DC Fontana had gotten mm-hmm. her hands on this, if only Gene Roddenberry had to. still been around." I get yeah. the Enterprise incident. 
Mm, yeah. That was Dorothy's, yeah, yeah. and it went in a direction that she did not want it to go in, and uh, that power was taken out of her hands. So, um, But you also have to remember, they went from a seven-day shooting schedule to a six-day shooting schedule, and you can see as the... Um, as the season progresses, them getting more desperate and desperate and using, reusing um, um, uh, costumes and so forth a lot just to save money. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Mike, to your point about um, the the rewrites and about Gene having the, uh, the, the unfortunate position of being the producer who was rewriting and then getting a lot of... Uh, the, the the brunt of the anger from writers and that you know maybe he didn't handle it particularly well uh, uh, from a diplomatic point of view but you know I, I remember when we were talking on our show about City on the Edge of Forever and of course that's the most egregious example you can point to about a writer who was hurt by the edits the changes were made to a story but then you go back and reread it and I think there are a lot of people who would agree with me to say well the story that was made the story that was filmed was better you know, and I think you can probably point to a lot of examples in Star Trek where, where that happened. You know, and maybe if Gene had been around more in the later episodes, maybe we would have been able to turn around some of those weaker storylines. You know, I, I, I don't disagree. Uh, I think uh, Ellison's original City in the Edge of Forever may have been a stronger script. But I think uh, the version that finally came out was a far better Star Trek episode. Right. It's a quintessential Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the space pirate scenes in, in, the, uh, in the original version of City, uh, they were good scenes. Mm-hmm. But I think they, uh, they were a little too... I think they went a little... Uh, I don't think it would have been as good Star Trek. Right. Right. Do you think that... Star Trek benefited from its early death, <laughs> you know? I mean, it, it was barely saved at the end of the first season. It was barely saved at the end of the second season. And then it just sort of went away during that third season. Um, and for everybody who's sort of a revisionist historian about Star Trek, I, I think that there are many who wished that it had held on for another season of what could have been. But then this sort of weird, nebulous period of a show that's off the air that found a new audience syndication that had an animated series and then finally, after so many false starts, came back as a movie. And so, do, do you think that that downtime helped it? You're, you're asking two questions. The first question mm-hmm. is essentially, if they'd done a fourth season, would it have been uh, would it have been would it have been good? Right and. That's that's always a crapshoot. Yeah, um, I don't think uh, Fred Freiberger was was uh, was necessarily the best choice to produce the show. Uh, would Roddenberry have come come back? If he had come back, would he have been fatigued? Would he have been uh, uh, as energetic as he was at the beginning? Uh, that's that's hard to say. I mean, television production is brutal, and we were just in the art department. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in command of, of making all those decisions and so forth. Um, two things about the third season and Star Trek going away. Um, on a marketing l- level, 
um, they were hitting their demographics. I mean, we've all we all know about this. They were hitting their demographics, but demographics weren't in existence, or they were very they were not used as a tool. So they were hitting their demographics. Also, when it went into syndication, it was shown all over the country at all different times. Um, you know, it was I think in Los Angeles, it was at six o'clock in the in the evening as opposed to 10 o'clock at night on a Friday, the third season, which a lot of people, their demographics, were not home watching television. So, um, you know, Star Trek. And then also you had this pent-up passion and love for this television series that started the swell of conventions. And that was a a grassroots, um, fan-based, you know, event that happened that was unprecedented. And then, you know, we see many years later Star Trek the Motion Picture. Um, I don't think, if you've read some of the Phase 2 scripts, um, to me personally, because the whole crew wasn't there, that chemistry was broken. And it doesn't speak to me as a fan of the original series. So I don't know if you could capture that magic again. Mm. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about... um your approach to uh, TOSR. Um, when that project was announced, I know that there were a lot of fans who were concerned about it, a little worried. They didn't want to see, you know, a George Lucas being done. Yeah, you're on, looking uh, at two of them. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so obviously you guys were hired because they knew that you would treat it with the respect that uh, that it deserves. So I, I I want you to speak in general at first just about kind of the the challenge of doing that and what your approach was. When uh, we first heard about TOSR, our uh, w- we had two responses. First of all, the actual remastering, the rescanning of the film was simply gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Just beautiful. Everything else aside, the, the show never looked so beautiful. But then... Uh, we did not want. Uh, uh, we didn't want the visual effects to not fit, and we wanted to respect the uh, the material that we originally loved. And what happened was, uh, our friend Dave Rossi was brought in as a, as a producer, as a consulting producer, and he called us up and said, "Hey, uh, would you like to be involved?" And uh, Denise and I talked about it over and over, and we we were we had trepidations as great as everyone else and finally we decided we didn't want to be involved. So I called Dave and said thank you very much for uh, for, for inviting us, but uh, I think we're going to want to pass on this. I think it's just going to be too uh, too frustrating for us. And then I spent half an hour on the phone for him saying okay, here's how I think you should do it. I think you should uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I think you, you need to start with, with the original material and respect it, the original compositions and the original designs. But then, in places you need you need to push it to give it a little bit, of, a little bit of polish, mm-hmm. but not so much polish as to generally draw attention. Anyway, I, I, I blathered <laughs> about that for a while, and and Dave was very, uh, very patient. He listened to me, and finally he said, "You know, if you feel that strongly about it, come on board. Otherwise, shut up." <laughs> <laughs> so we worked on it. <laughs> what were the biggest challenges that you faced during that? Well, I, I want to know time it, and money. Well, I, uh, obviously, I'm thinking thematically, you know, when you got to a place where there was an effect that either you had some concern among the three of you, you two and Dave, or um, uh, up against the other powers that be, were there, um, 
Were there conceptual ideas that you had that that you thought about that didn't make it or did make it that you you know won a particular battle on a particular effect or uh, or change that you wanted to make? Can you talk to us the, about it? The baseline approach was uh, was to recreate what was done with the original designs, but at a higher image quality. Um, then again, you subtly make changes. Uh, a good example is if you look at the main title sequence for the first season, we literally had them go back and, and rotoscope the positions of the stars so this, those, those familiar star patterns match. So you, uh, and what you want to say to the fans is, look, these guys, uh, the guys at CBS Digital, they get it. Yeah. You know, they're they're going to respect what you love. But then as an episode progresses, you show the ship from a slightly different angle. You show uh, 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 an unfamiliar sh uh, shot, because hopefully by that point you're 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 uh, uh, immersed in the episode. You're going, oh my god, is, are they going to make it? So you're not you're not thinking about it. And so there's there's a little bit of freshness. And the most interesting discussions were, uh, and, and then the third kind of shot you um, you you fix a lot is uh, if there's something that's broken, it's. Uh, that just it never worked from the beginning. It doesn't hold up, and and if it's feasible, you know, can you can you uh, make it not suck? <laughs> and so uh, we had a lot of discussions as as to as to which uh, uh, kinds of things went into which category. Was there anything? Uh, forgive me, not to uh, well across the universes, but so in the Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Wrong show, Ken. Yeah, well, no, st stick Star with Wars me. <laughs> stick well, because it. it's the best. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in the Empire Strikes Back, uh, Luke's on his way to Dagobah, right? And he's talking to R two D two, and of course he can't speak whatever R two D two speaks, but he's reading what he's saying on a screen. And I'm guessing you've seen this. I don't know. And when it came out in eighty, there was a little bit of a bounce, right? He's moving the the, the dashboard, but the but the words stay. Stationary, mm -hmm. which I assume is part of the special effect that they were using at the time, and then George Lucas blows like a billion and a half dollars remastering, you know, doing adding effects, doing all this stuff, right? And and when Empire Strikes Back comes on with all the new, you know, whiz bang and Cloud City's bigger and different and all of it, um, when he looks at the dashboard, the words stay exactly where they are, and the dashboard still moves. <laughs> <laughs> right, and you know, the, there's a there's a lot of things. Uh, even if you're George Lucas, uh, with not quite an infinite budget, but a lot of there, there's always constraints, and and that's kind of thing. Yeah, I, I noticed it too, and uh, and I'm sure it occurred to them to fix it. But is it worth fixing? Do, do, does it improve your ability? <laughs> Probably not. Well, there's one kid. I will tell you. <laughs> But I mean, I guess that would, that sort of goes to my question: Is there anything? And I don't want to. I don't want you to name it because I don't want to see it if I haven't yet. But I mean, is there anything where you guys were like, eh, "We could fix that," but we've got this, or we could fix that? But I think you're the only one who notices. All I mean, the, all the time. okay, <laughs> and, and all the time in the in our current uh, TNG R that we're doing, mm. all the time. Yeah, it's always it's always a balancing act. It's not there's with visual effects, modern visual effects. There's Almost nothing you can't do, almost, and 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 yet there 
even with a generous budget, there, there's, there's still limitations, and, and you don't, you don't want to spend a huge amount of money fixing something that, uh, that, that a small number of people are going to care about, because then you might not have the resources to fix something that a lot of people are going to care about. Ken, I, I know that there was an effect in uh, TOSR that, that really got you thinking. Um, it, it was in uh, Taste of Armageddon, <laughs> uh, the initial beam down uh, right. in, front of, uh, in front of the city. Um, there, there was maybe uh, some special guests added to the effect um, in the background, uh, some of the people. I'm, I'm looking at them right now, Ken. Uh, we Mike, actually weren't in that shot, but yes. You weren't in that shot? No. Well, what shot did you put yourselves in? In uh, 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 Menagerie Part 1. Oh, oh, in, in front of the Michael complex. And Michael piloted okay. the shuttlecraft in, in, was that Immunity Syndrome, was that Babel? Yeah, both. Babel. <laughs> and any time you see a thin bread stick, that's me, um, in <laughs> okay. the window or whatever, uh, so you can see me. Um, that was a lot of fun. Nice. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. We were just wondering if in the re-remaster, maybe in another 20 or 30 years... If we could, like, like I could be on the mountain across from the mountain in a mock time. Oh. <laughs> I'd be okay with that, just waving, you know, like, hey, it's, it's, hey, the Spock, Spock's here. We should go say hey. You know, like, you got it. You'll be, you'll be there. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And, and John, you know, if you could put John someplace. Maybe there's, a, there's like, a 17-minute fight um, in the trouble with Tribbles. <laughs> Maybe John could just sneak just in, somewhere. grab a drink, and go back out. Yeah, yeah. he'd be. I yeah. have no need for fighting. I, 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 don't, I, I don't want to be around for that. But maybe a need for drinks. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So when this interview airs, we, we should be deeply into or have been deeply into the animated series. Now, you guys are sort of the, uh, the keepers of the flame, the, the writers there, of, there the are many of the chronology. Well, yeah, but, but I mean, but come on, you, you guys wrote a book, <laughs> you know. You were tapped by Gene Roddenberry to kind of create the chronology of Star Trek. So you really came in at a point where you could spell out what this universe is like. And, and my point being that you both have to have a, sort of dive more deeply into research into Star Trek than just about anybody. Um, and here we are with the animated series that I'd say half of our listeners are driven crazy by and the other half of our listeners are very excited and very enthusiastic about. Um, where do you hold this series in regard? When the animated series, it's, it's difficult to imagine what Star Trek fandom was back when the animated series first uh, first showed. Uh, the original series was becoming hugely popular. It was it was coming into its own as as a as a popular culture uh, phenomenon. And yet the show was out of production, and people were hungry for for a new Star Trek. And uh, Gene had been trying to bring it back as a TV movie or or or, or, or whatever, and uh, for whatever reason. That just wasn't working. So, uh, so to have this new influx of Star Trek, even with the significant limitations of animation, that was a huge gift. What? Uh, yeah. What are your impressions of the show? You can be honest. <laughs> I will be nothing but honest. <laughs> um, for me, I was really excited about it when I first heard about it because I thought, if nothing else, I could close my eyes and see those characters in my brain in the universe that I knew so well. But that didn't work because those actors were usually not together when they read. They were in a room speaking to a microphone just as I'm doing right now. 
and that chemistry and that magic didn't come across for me. Um, I think there were some very fine episodes. Um, Yesteryear is one of them, Dorothy Fontana. Of course, right. Um, and I think that there were absolutely some really good stories, but it had the constraints of only being, you know, a very short period of time. And again, um, the actors didn't sound for me like they were in the environment. Now, saying that, the animation did allow you to have some uh, alien-looking characters, which was great. Um, Morass and Eric, Eric's. Um, so that was cool. Um, for me, though, it didn't hit the marks like I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. But it was lovely to have new Star Trek. I mentioned that you did this chronology. Um, what was your... Th- this is before the internet. <laughs> it was a, a helpful tool. So what was your research like, and, and what was sort of your direction from Gene in creating that? Well, we didn't speak directly with Gene, mm-hmm. uh, but there was, uh, there was a time when uh, all of the uh, uh, ancillary... Uh, the the novels the uh, comic books and everything else uh, of course flo- flowed through his office and he, uh, there was a great deal of frustration because uh, a lot of times people would get notes back saying well this didn't happen or uh, this wasn't invented by then or well he he didn't know him back back by then but it was before this and a lot of people were very familiar with the um, uh, with the Star Trek history just because there wasn't that much Star Trek at, at that time. But there was enough that it was actually fairly hard for one person to keep track of it. And with this, this is around the fourth or fifth season, and Star Trek really was, Next Generation was really starting to take off. And up until that point, they had been pretty successful in holding the timeline together, just partly by luck, partly by being vague. (laughs) But it it was okay. But at that point, there was a real, uh, uh, I felt, at that point, that there was a real chance that the timeline itself was going to fall apart because there's just going to be too many internal contradictions. So when Gene suggested this, uh, Denise and I jumped on it, and we said, "Okay, what's the best way to do a, uh, a chronology?" And we started from the uh, viewpoint of we know nothing. You know, we all had our pet theories as to, mm-hmm. as to what happened when, when, or, or what. But we said, okay, "Let's throw all that out the window." You know, you know nothing. There exists this body of work called Star Trek which was, uh, at that time, uh, the original series, the movies, and Next Generation. And I think at that time, Deep Space Nine was just starting up. And so, let's pretend that that's all fact. What do you know from the episodes? And then write it all down. And then we, we put it all to a spreadsheet, and we said, okay, uh, Kirk said that this happened a year ago, so we know this happened at this point in the spreadsheet. Let's put that a year ago, so which means that that happened after that. And we uh, we spent a huge amount of effort, uh, effort just building that spreadsheet. Yeah, I mean, we enjoyed doing it because it's our passion, but it was unbelievable amount of work. I'm, you start by correcting the script to air, mm-hmm. um, and when you we had an eighteen page. Uh, guide um, of things to look for in the episode, you know, 
where are they going at the beginning of the episode, where have they been, on and on and on, 18 pages. Wow. And um, then anything that you pulled from the episode, you put in quotes and a page number. So if there was every, any question, you went back and you knew exactly that was the dialogue. There was not a mistake. That's or we tried not not to have a mistake. Um, so there was a. We treated it as like a, a thesis. We treated it as a historical project, and um, and then there was this puzzle. And we thought it wouldn't fit together, and it actually fit together quite well. Were you guys responsible for ultimately putting the uh, the the time and date stamp on what is a star date? Because I know that in the original series, this was kept very vague, and in watching the original series, they'll sometimes refer to something that happened a few hundred years ago, several hundred years ago, and the the actual time period that is contemporary to the original series sort of shifts. You know, a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it'll, okay, well, they're in the... Television series. Right, right, yeah. (laughs) Sometimes they're in the 23rd century, sometimes they're in the 22nd or 24th. Yeah. Um, But I know that sort of through retconning, there's your favorite word, Ken. Yay. (laughs) Um, There was an attempt to say, okay, all of this takes place in the 2260s, and and now that will be the, the time and date that we stamp on that show so everything that comes after it we know when it occurs was that your doing or was that elsewhere we tried to invent as little as possible mm-hmm. um, so uh, I believe the, the the notion that the original series took place uh, roughly or uh, in this case I think exactly 300 years after the uh, the events in or, uh, uh, after the uh, the episodes themselves aired, uh, that suggestion came from Gene or from Gene's office. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an episode of Next Generation where they explicitly said, "This is the year uh, 2364." And then, based with with those two data points, working forward and backwards from from, from different things, that's pretty much the framework of the uh, of the uh, of the entire chronology. And we very deliberately didn't want to bring our pet theories into it because uh, we knew that uh, among some Star Trek fans the exact dates and things are uh, they're, they're very passionate about it yeah. and, and we respected that on the other hand uh, a lot of those things were, were uh, this, guy, this person's uh, book contradicts that person's book contradicts that fanzine and we didn't want to take a view of uh, John's fanzine was right, and Denise's was wrong. We ju- we just wanted to, as much as possible, go from the episodes themselves, from the actual spoken dialogue, not even from the script, but from what corrected right. to air. Yeah, we right. didn't want uh, if if Kirk said, "Oh, today's my birthday, and it's this day," mm-hmm. but it, uh, but that that line didn't make it to air. You know, we actually something like that we probably would have put in, but <laughs> right. uh, for the most part, we we wanted to know, you know what did they say. Got it. <laughs> Can I, can I ask a question that's going to be completely nitpicky and you may not even have an answer, but it's driving me crazy for the past few weeks? Go for it. <laughs> Were Khan and Colonel Green <laughs> fighting at the same time, or was there like a period between between the two? Because Khan leaves in the nineties, right? But Colonel Green was a warlord, but Colonel Green was a warlord in the twenty first century. Right? Yeah. 
I've, okay, so so the battle that 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 ended up throwing Khan off the planet, I, I it had always been assumed that Khan won, but then got expelled by the people who weren't warlords, and yet twenty years later, maybe or or sometime later, uh, here's this warlord again. Were they were they fighting a contemporary battle, or is that two different things? My personal guess is that they're two different things. I think that'd be a great story to tell, and that might be yeah, worth, that'd be a great story. That might be worth uh, 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 Paul Abrams. The, no, no, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> that might be worth shifting around the, around the dates. Uh, and you know, somewhere were to do an episode, I'm sure that's what we have to do. Ken has not slept in two months because of this. Well, it's made me a little nuts. <laughs> it's made me a little crazy, honestly, because you know the assumption seemed to be that humanity had turned a corner when they got rid of Khan. And then to find out that, you know, here's this guy again. Yeah. Well, there's another corner to be turned. I guess so. That's true. That's Can true. I tell you that in Enterprise, uh, there was, uh, uh, in the fourth season, there was for a while a notion that there was going to be an episode in which we brought back uh, Colonel Green. Ooh. And so th- th- this, 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 is, this is a small, t- trivial little thing that uh, just brought me great amusement. Um, who I think was contemporary with Colonel Green uh, were the uh, post-atomic horror uh, battles described in Farpoint. So if you look on Q's 21st century drug-controlled military helmet, there's a there's an interesting symbol. I, I don't know where it, I don't actually know who, who did it. Bill Tyson came up with it, and I took that symbol. And in the Mirror Universe episode of, uh, of uh, Star Trek Enterprise, in the briefing room, I put a flag that had that symbol as if that, that was a historic, historic thing. And my hope was that if we did Colonel Green, I would then uh, reintroduce that onto his costume or onto a flag or something. Nice. So you're nice. not the only one that thinks about these things. <laughs> <laughs> so, that was my moment of geek. <laughs> nice. One of many. Um. Tell us uh, a little bit about your interactions with Gene Roddenberry, um, because you, you came in in 86, or, or, well, prior to 86. You, your first movie was Star Trek Four, right? Which was 86. Yeah. So it came out in 86, but you were working on it before mm-hmm. then. And, um, and Denise, you came in... I came in later, but I knew Gene uh, well before then through mutual friends. Hmm. Um, it wasn't a working relationship. Mm-hmm. I just um, had the pleasure of going to lunch with him or going up to his office. or um, And, of course, you know, he created this thing that, that was such a huge part of my life that I had enormous respect for him. And um, But how many people get to take that admiration and... and transcend into a professional level and actually work for that person. So Michael and I just consider ourselves incredibly blessed um, to have known Gene. Can you tell us then a little bit about your knowing him on a personal friendly level versus then knowing him as a boss? I'm just curious to kind of paint this picture in my mind of what, uh, what he was like. What your uh, what your contact and interactions were like with him? Well, Michael really had more interaction than I did on a pro- on a on a professional level. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
actually the very first time I met him was uh, he was speaking at a, a public event in, in, in Honolulu. And then uh, the second time I saw him was, uh, uh, was a, there was a tiny science fiction convention on the big island of Hawaii. There were two guests. Uh, Gene Roddenberry was one guest, and I was the other. And it was, it, 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 this was long before I had anything to do with Star Trek. I, I just, um, I used to do some work in, in uh, special mechanical effects for te local television commercials, so I guess that qualified me to be a guest. <laughs> there was a, he was showing the cage, and there was an unfamiliar film projector there. So the, uh, the, the person who threaded it, threaded it wrong, and it was shredding Gene's film. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and each person came on, shredded more film. Oh. So finally, and uh, finally went to Gene. And I said, "You know, Gene, I actually know how to work that thing." <laughs> so Gene, who really didn't know me, just said, "Excuse me, you know, Michael, where uh, works with these things?" So I, yeah. so I, I, I saved his film. Nice, nice. But uh, both Denise and I, uh, when we were children, uh, we loved the book, The Making of Star Trek. By uh, uh, by Stephen Whitfield, and Star Trek was this wonderful f universe, this, this this fantasy, this dream, this goal of, uh, of of a better tomorrow. And Stephen's book created for us an entirely new, different universe, a, a parallel universe, in which uh, the heroes aren't Kirk and Spock, but the heroes are people like Gene Roddenberry and Bob Justman and Dorothy Fontana and Matt Jeffries, who. Uh, who, on a weekly basis, produce these the, these wondrous visions? So both of us going in had looked at these people like they're amazing. So, to, and I think that that came across. Um, I remember during the first season of Next, Next Generation, uh, Gene was acutely aware that uh, that even though he had this reputation for for doing Star Trek, that he had to prove himself again. Mm. So he was. Getting a new reputation for being difficult to work with, at least for uh, uh, for the designers. I remember he rejected many, many dozens of designs for the uh, um, for Jordy's visor, for example. But uh, at the same time, I think he knew. I, ch I choose to believe that uh, that he knew that. I understood that my job was to make him look good, and th and, and for that reason. I think he trusted me a great deal. Um, uh, I didn't even meet with him. Uh, Sandy Veneziano, our art director, went up to his office and, sh and showed him my first concept for the uh, uh, for the Enterprise Enterprise D consoles. And I was I was kind of dreading it because typically at a, at a, after that kind of meeting you get pages and pages and pages of notes, which uh, and particularly if you're dealing with someone who, who's not familiar with graphics, a lot of times. The notes sound good, but they're actually going to cause you other problems. And and, and much worse, I sent uh, my my uh, my color scheme up there. I, ha I had a very specific technical reason for uh, for the exact shades of color that I picked. So you know, could you have done something differently? Yes, but there were there's a good reason for these things. Mm -hmm. And and I just knew that it, it's gonna, it's gonna, it was going to come back, and I was going to have to change everything and make it stupid. <laughs> Sandy came back from the meeting and said, "Gene loves it. Go with it." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I feel that he had uh, that he knew that I was simply trying to make him look good. 
And Den Denise, what was the transition like then for you going from this person that you had had lunch with that you respected just for the body of work that they had created and then going into work for this person essentially? I think the bottom line is respect. Um, just like I can, Michael is my boss in the art department um, and obviously we're a married couple. There's a totally different relationship when you're working. I respect Michael. I respect his genius. I have no problem with him telling me what to do on the set. I mean, I respect that. Same thing with Gene. It, um, I mean, I respected him as a person, but you take yourself out of that. He's my boss. He runs the show. Um, it's my job to make him look good. Um, so there's a dichotomy that coexists, um, but I think it's based on respect. And there's also, there's also a certain... Uh, he respected us, mm. but at the same time, he was the boss. Yeah. This is, this is mm. his show. Uh, um, uh, I remember once uh, uh, Rick Sternbeck and I had written uh, an early draft of the technical manual uh, for, uh, for Gene to distribute to the writers, and he, uh, he made a suggestion which I really didn't like, but hey, it's a show. You know, he, he listened to, to what I suggested, and he said, no, I want to do this. So, okay, you're the boss. We touched earlier on, uh, well, what Lucas did with uh, Star Wars and, and what you guys did uh, with remastering Star Trek. And now, you know, I would say it's probably more with the original series than anything you're doing with uh, with uh, TNG. But was there any was there any trepidation? Was there any like not wanting to touch it? Yes. I mean, is there is there was there concern that there was going to be blowback? Or I mean, what was that about exactly? Uh, we always knew that that. Uh, there'd be fan skepticism, and we, and we always respected that. And uh, but you know, at the same time, we were fans ourselves, so we we would we simply simply did our best. When we were first told about the project, I was adamant I didn't want them to touch a <laughs> bit of the film. I'm a purist and um, have very strong feelings when it comes to Star Trek and the original series, and I didn't want them touching it. Um, I, I appreciated and applauded Lucas for what he did, but I still don't watch the, um, whatever they're called, the, the, the updated, remastered uh, Star Wars films. Special I go editions. back and watch what I watched back in 77 or what. So when we were first asked about it, I categorically said, no, I do not want anything to do with this. And then I, then it scared me because who's going to be doing it? And that's mm -hmm. when... Uh, Mike and I made the decision we would not be working on it, and um, but we had very strong feelings about it, and we finally did come in, and, and I'm glad we did, because we felt like we were kind of trying to protect Star Trek. Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, here we are almost 50 years later, and there are still people coming to Star Trek for the first time. Isn't that amazing? Well, it is. And that's, that's an interesting point there, that uh, on... Uh, First of all, let me uh, salute what CBS uh, uh, Home Entertainment did. That is, when they released the show on uh, on, um, on Blu-ray, they were uh, they put a huge amount of effort. Turned out to be much more difficult th than anybody thought. That it includes both versions of the episodes. So if you like the originals, you got them. If you if you like the remasters, you got them. But CBS's uh, specific mandate were 
that they wanted to bring in a, a new new uh, generation of, uh, of fans into the show, and they wanted to, they specifically did want to tweak the the, uh, the visual effects to uh, so that it might not be a stumbling block to young reviewers coming in uh, to Star Trek for the first time, and I think in large part the, uh, the effort that effort was successful. And we've been told by. Um some some folks uh, in licensing and so forth, that um, the original series is more popular than ever. Now, some of that is due to um, people watching the Abrams film, and when they've watched the two movies a couple times and say, oh, well, this is a cool universe, what's next? And they go back and they watch the original series and they go, well, this is really cool. And um, so, unbelievably to us, um, because we've been with Star Trek so long, is that it's still very alive. And I think there is a hunger for Star Trek on so many different levels. And that's why we're always excited um, when a project comes along and we think every single project we do now, oh, this is the last project we're going to work on for Star Trek. <laughs> we've never stopped working on Star Trek. We're very blessed. The, uh, the the debate that launched a thousand emails was uh, discussing this side of paradise. Okay. And uh, Ken's contention that uh, that the spores are benign, that the people who are on Omicron set of SETI three were um, they were actually accomplishing what they had set out to do. They were farmers. They were farming. They were happy. Kirk comes in, and Ken, please stop me if I'm misrepresenting your argument. Well, you're leaving out you're leaving out one part. They were also healed. Mm, yes, yeah, they were healthy. They were very. I healthy. mean, this was not yeah. the argument that has they been didn't from have any animals. There wasn't any. Um, there were no dogs, so for me, that was not going to be a good existence. <laughs> yeah, no dogs. No dogs would be a bad thing. Yes. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, they they didn't go there to open a kennel. So <laughs> I'm kind of okay with that animals. too. They did well, have farm animals, and yeah. they had no farm animals. And were they doing anything? What, you be, <laughs> Am I this was into this was not my yeah, well yes okay. it, which is fine it it's not <sighs> go ahead John but but they were happy they they were happy weren't doing anything they well they built houses and they were growing growing crops somehow without any insects being around so they were eating they were healthy they had built houses and they were happy but then it was Kirk who said no 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 enough of this happiness. We're going to get the you away from the spores. We can return you back to your uh, your miserable existences, where you can deal with things like strife and pain and disease. And death. Well, it was it was both it was both it was both Kirk and it was Starfleet. Remember when they when they got there, their mandate once they found out that there were people there, their mandate was to get those people off the planet. Not even to ask them, you know, well, how's it going? Or, you know, I mean, there, was, there wasn't even a question of, well, do these people want to be there? Should these people be there? It was just like, oh, there are people there. Well, there shouldn't be people there. Get those people out of there. But, but, but Denise just, uh, she was about to mention the, uh, the, the line that Sandoval Orlando, has. we've done nothing here. <laughs> we've, yeah. We, we've done nothing here. We've accomplished nothing. We've, yeah. 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 Well, whatever. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, there's a reason that I don't that I don't really much participate in this argument anymore. Uh, <laughs> I understand that, but what are we trying to do? 
That's the question that I have. What did they go there for? And maybe it's never clearly stated what they went there for. They started to go for this agrarian society, right? Who would have been really happy there, honestly, would have been the space hippies, except for you know the guy who led them. And I know I shouldn't say space hippies and the guy who led them. I should actually know the names of these things, but I don't. Dr. Severin. Dr. Severin. Yes. And Adam. Yeah. I say set them off on Omicron Study 3. They would be thrilled. They would be healed. Yeah. No more acid burns on their feet. All you uh, have to do is put up a sign that says, Welcome to Eden. Yeah, welcome to Eden. There you go. go. That would actually work out pretty well. As you can eat. The only question is, would Dr. Severin have... See, Severin at that point might not have been happy, though, because what he actually wanted was... Severin was crazy. Right. Well, what he actually wanted was sort of the, the overpowering rule, I think. Well, the question, yeah. question is, would, would the spores have, have, have made Severin happy? And, uh, and I, I choose to believe that they would have. But Probably. That, that actually... Uh, uh, my issue with the episode, yeah, if I may nitpick... I love mm-hmm. the episode. ...is uh, Kirk arguably... Uh, had a mandate, Kirk, for both uh, uh, Starfleet reasons and for his uh, for ethical reasons, felt he had to do what he did. Mm-hmm. He was right or wrong is a certainly an interesting question. But once it was all done, once it was over, there's this remarkable thing that heals you and makes you happy. Let's send a science team there to figure out how this works. Can, can you, can you right. do it without taking away your ambition? <laughs> can you do it and, ju- and just fix people's tonsils? You know, right. that's, no. That's, Dif- that's difficult part there, though, is they would get there and they would lose the desire to do that. Well, then... There'd be a bunch of brawls all over the place. There'd be somebody beaming yeah, down and then, started making but, fights. And yeah, we, that's we, true. We know, how to, we know how to treat it. The, the, uh, and scientists are smart. They'll figure out a way to study they, it. They probably use heronolin. Yeah. <laughs> I guess where well my issue is still what my issue was I don't guess I understand exactly what it is that we're trying to accomplish what it is we're trying to do or who we're trying to do it for my assumption has been that what we're all trying to get to is sort of a a place of contentment or a place of happiness it, uh, maybe that even a place a of enlightenment story. if you're lucky well I know that wasn't that story but the problem that I've had so I've had a bunch of people say so Kirk should have just thrown away the Enterprise then and stayed there forever well no I never said that I, I say that the people who were on City Omicron 3 Omicron City 3 I say the people that were there um, it, were there and they were fine being there and they should have been left there and then people should have had the option like Spock should have had the option to go back later if he decided that he wanted to and anybody who, you know, took a huff of the spores for a moment and then walked away should have decided that they wanted to go back at some point. It's only when they're not in that moment that they that they feel like they've done something terrible. But they could have theoretically lived there forever, happily. Absolutely. It's only when yeah, somebody else Absolutely. it's only when somebody else comes and, and holds up their you know, this is what you should be doing. Then they're like, oh, this is what I should be doing. This is like when Adam and Eve were cast out and, you know, suddenly they're naked and they're ashamed of their nakedness. Well, five minutes ago, they were fine being naked. It was only when somebody else said, dude, you're naked. Put something on. And he's like, oh, oh, I got to put something on. I'm naked. And before he was like, man, it's nice. You know what I mean? I mean, there's there's and 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 there's a very there's a very Judeo Christian Western idea that you know you work for six days and you rest on the seventh. We don't get to a place where we're just cool, and it, and it's 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 just so enforced and reinforced in us that any time and a number of times in the original series when we would come across people who were happy, we would get blowback from people from listeners. 
who would think that I was a nut for thinking that, you know, we should have left the happy people happy as opposed to making the happy people fit into our idea of what's good for people. Well, that would certainly be a valid alternate take on the episode. And I think what you're saying uh, significantly shows that the audience, uh, at least part of the audience, has, uh, has changed. That the answer that was quite satisfying back in 1966 uh, is something that, that, that a 2014 audience will look at and go, you know, there may be more to it than that. Yeah. And, and if there were a Star Trek on the air, I'd love to see that, that it, uh, explored. Yeah, makes a boring show though. I mean, just going to Peace Planet. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the writer's job. Just to that's show the why, problem. Right. That's, that's the writer's job to show why that's an interesting and, and dramatic uh, uh, issue. Oh well, you know what you do actually. You have Wesley step on something, and then we'll have to kill him. Oh, uh, <laughs> or it could be bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We'll do this again. Uh, hey guys, I uh, just finished listening to uh, this week's episode of the Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And as a lifelong fan of the Godfather of Soul, one of my favorite bits of Trek V trivia didn't get mentioned by John this week. Uh, when the cat lady thing attacks Kirk on the planet of galactic peace, her animal shrieking is made up almost entirely of spliced together James Brown screams. Uh, specifically, if memory serves, screams from 1976's Get Up Off of That Thing and the one JB song that everybody knows, I Feel Good. Uh, I've been listening to the show from day one. Uh, glad that I can now say that I've officially contributed something. Thanks. Ken and John, this is Scott from Minneapolis. Uh, I want to thank you a lot for your podcast on Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. I had watched the movie a week ahead of this uh, podcast for the only, only the second time. And I hated it so much when it first came out. It just sort of disgruntled me on all of Star Trek and put me off of even watching Star Trek Six. But I did watch it and it redeemed itself. But listening to your podcast, I have to applaud you on many counts, but most of all for giving me an appreciation for the movie that I didn't have. Looking very much forward to the next generation, which is also my Star Trek and years of podcasts to come. I hope you guys with that. I really love this podcast. I love everything you bring to it. And uh, thank you. Hi, my name is Brad Hermit. I just finished listening to the Star Trek V podcast, and I have been listening to you guys since the first season of the original series. And I have to say, the computer voice asking, are you sure you meant to tune into this podcast? You know, this is the one with Alpha Whale, was one of the funniest bits of humor I've heard on this show. Um, I love the podcast. I am one of the few listeners who actually listens to the podcast without watching the episodes. Uh, when you review a particularly good episode of one of the movies, I'll actually go back and watch it afterwards, uh, taking you know your commentary and things into account. It sort of gives me a new perspective on it. Um, I have seen most of the things in the past, so it's more a walk down memory lane when I uh, listen to you guys talk about it, along with uh, the moral meanings and messages. Keep up the fantastic work, and thank you very much for a fantastic podcast, and have a wonderful day. If you would like to be featured on an episode of Mission Log, a supplemental edition of Mission Log, there are plenty of ways to get in touch with us. Uh, Facebook, Skype, and Twitter, the handle is Mission Log Pod. You can call us 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. 
We do have a lovely place for you to check out online, missionlogpodcast.com. And there's another lovely place for you to check out online. Mission Log is now featured on trekmovie.com, and many thanks to them for giving us a place to stay. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log, but please keep your message short. They're just, there's there's only so much time. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, this explanation of how to get in touch with us has gone on far too long. <laughs>